0: Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorne, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show pathology assistant, and the woman behind The Gross Room, Nicole and Jemmy. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from becoming a single mother at a very young age, her journey into the world of medicine, finding pathology, the creation of The Gross Room, her perspective on obesity, cancer, the importance of underlying health, mental health. The Firefighter Family, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Nicole and Jemmy. Enjoy. Well, Nicole, I want to start by saying firstly, thank you to Amy Loughran, who was on the show. The Good Nurse was the documentary about her life, um, and she was the one that turned me on to all of your work. So I want to thank her first, and then I also want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today.
1: Hi. I love Amy, so thanks for recommending me, Amy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so where on planet Earth are we finding you today?
1: I am in New Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia.
0: So I would love to start at the very beginning of your actual timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings?
1: Okay. So I was born in 1979 in New Jersey and at a hospital in Woodbury, New Jersey. Actually, I have parents, Beth and Lou, who are awesome. I love them and they're still married. They've been married almost 50 years and I have two siblings. So I have, I'm the oldest. And then I have a, a, a sister who's younger than me. Her name's Annie. And then I have a brother who's a little bit significantly younger than me. I would say I was in third grade when he was born. So I'm really his bigger sister. And um, his name's Louie.
0: And what about professions? What were your parents doing?
1: So my mom was a stay at home mom for a majority of my life and she did cool little jobs like sell Avon and she always was like hustling to make some side money. And then she eventually went to college for dietary like nutrition. And she was working in a nursing home, handling the nutrition for people there. And then she ended up she just retired last year, but she ended up going to Children's Hospital and working in the diabetes division for the last years of her career. And my dad was a diesel truck mechanic.
0: I literally was just talking to someone the other day who also works in pediatric diabetics. Um, And I was asking them, have you seen an uptick, you know, in diabetes? And at first she was like, no, no, not really. And then she, I realized she was talking about type one diabetes. And I was like, what about type two? And she's like, oh my God, it has exploded. So what what is your mom seeing?
1: Yeah, same thing. She, I mean, she retired last year, but she just couldn't, I mean, working in, she worked in Philadelphia at one of the biggest ch- children's hospitals in the country. And um, yeah, she saw so many, c- cause she was the one that was scheduling the patients to meet with the dietitians and things like that. So she was talking to almost every single patient that was coming in there. And it was like the waiting list was ridiculous. And just the amount of patients and new patients every day, crazy.
0: And this is probably a very obvious question, but through her perspective, what is she talking about as the reason for this, this swell in childhood type two diabetes? It's
1: diet. (laughs) Clearly, like it's, it's just like everybody knows that. So
0: yeah, that's the sad fact. Um, Yeah. yeah, I I saw, uh, I mean, it went around the internet for a while, but it was, I forget now, but it was one of the soda companies, and they were, you know, if you bought their soda, then there would be a contribution to the American Diabetes Society, and I'm like, <laughs> or you could just oh not God. buy the soda.
1: Yeah, I, I, I really try. They always say that at the pediatrician's office when I bring my kids. What are the kids drinking? It's like a, it's a big thing, and I'm, I'm always like, well, the, my one kid is obsessed with like seltzer water, but it's, it doesn't have sugar in it. It's just fizzy water. Um, which I'm not sure if that's great to be drinking all day either, but the pediatrician seems to be okay with it. So.
0: Good. Yeah. My son, i, I just completely lucked out when he was little, he didn't like soda because of the bubbles. He used to say it was spiky when he was young. <laughs> and uh, so to this day, he doesn't drink soda. He drinks juice, which, you know, we're aware of the sugar of some of that, but uh, yeah, no soda, which is a, a blessing for a parent.
1: Yeah, we let our kids drink soda. We we say they could have it when we're on vacation and on their birthdays and holidays. So, And they do take us up on that. It'll be Christmas Eve and they'll say, can I have a can of Coke? And I'm like, sure, go ahead. It, it, everything in moderation is fine. And I feel like with kids, if you tell them you can't have this, they're going to go over their friend's house and like shove it in their face all the time. So I try to give them a little bit of the bad stuff sometimes.
0: I saw that same exact thing when I came to America, when it comes to alcohol in Europe, you know, more so in the you know the Mediterranean, but in the UK as well, we're exposed to alcohol and we're little, like I grew up having watered down wine, you know, on Sundays, sometimes with meals and, and there wasn't a big stigma about it. Now it's alcohol is not great. We all know that, but you weren't held back. And so, yes, you see, you know, excessive drinking in UK pubs, but you don't see the, the, you know keg stands and the beer pong and all the things because we've just always done it it's not a novelty then you come here and we've held our kids back and try to stigmatize it and then all of a sudden they get a college age and now they're just binge drinking and doing shots and it's a very different culture than than europe yeah my
1: daughter went my older daughter she went to um france as an exchange student and she was only 17 when she went and they drank they were allowed we had to give them permission to drink wine on the trip and all this stuff and or maybe she was 18 i don't know but um yeah she said the culture over there was just like no big deal teenagers drink all the time whatever
0: yeah now what about with your mom and the nursing home did you ever go with her to visit did that give you any sort of kind of introduction to the medical side that you ended up pursuing
1: I went there and visited her a bunch but never, never really saw the medical side just went right into the kitchen area where she worked her office was outside of the kitchen there. And that was kind of, I I really didn't get any interest until I started going to college. That's how I really got introduced to the whole world.
0: Now, what about, you know, obviously you you have a certain style, you know, you and your husband are both head to toe in tattoos, which I'm, I love seeing a firefighter with tattoos. I can't stand the demonization of that, that someone's going to stop mid-rescue and be like, you can't save me. You've got tattoos on yeah, your neck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what about that whole kind of vibe? Was that something that you found earlier or was that later in life?
1: Oh, no, I had the majority of my tattoos be- be- before uh, the internet even came out. <laughs> Um, I started getting them when I was 15. And by the time I was 21, I had most of them that I have now. I haven't really gotten too many more since then.
0: So what about career aspirations then? Were you thinking about the world that you found yourself in when you were in school age or was there something else?
1: No, um, I've, I was actually, I, I always examine this all the time because I was horrible in school. I hated school. I did poorly. I had bad grades. I was in what were called like special ed classes at the time. I never really thought that I was smart. Um, and I just wasn't into school. And I dropped out of school when I was 16 out of high school. And it wasn't until I, uh, I had a daughter when I was in ninth grade. And that was when i was like i have to go to school and get a career and get a job because i have a kid and i have to get health insurance for her because back then there was no such thing as like obamacare or whatever it was just like you're beat you don't have health insurance and so when i was younger people ask me that all the time like did you want to be this when you grow up i actually can't even think of saying anything when i was a kid that i thought that i was going to do when i grew up which is weird but I just don't know, but I started school and I thought like, I'm going to go to school to be a nurse because a couple of my cousins were nurses and I knew that they went to school only for, to get an RN two or three years. And then they, they ended up graduating and getting a good job with benefits and stuff. So I said, well, I guess I'll just go do that. I had, I didn't even know what a nurse did or anything. I just was like, I'm going to go to school and, and be a nurse and get a job. I was, cause I hated school. So I thought, what's the quickest path for me to go to college and get a decent paying job? That was my goal when I started school. But then that was how I got introduced into the
0: lab. So what about becoming a mother at ninth grade? I just had a guest uh, a couple of weeks ago now who became a father when he was 17 Um it's not something that we really think about. Obviously, now there are television programs, but again, I don't think they're doing <laughs> a service to the you know, the the moment that a child falls pregnant. Because I think most people put their hands on their heart. Many of us could have got many people pregnant and and become pregnant many many times when we were younger. Um, it's just you know the 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 luck of the draw in that moment in time. So now you're you know 16 and you're becoming a parent. Walk me through that. How how were you able to to stay, you know, a good mother during that age and what support system was around you at that moment?
1: Well, luckily I had my mom and dad, obviously, and my sister and brother, we were all living in the same house and I had her and it was, it was rough. It was, I mean, what can I say? Like, I know that they showed TV shows that are glamorizing it or something, but it, it, it was nothing of that. I mean, imagine being in ninth grade and having a baby and then trying to Date and like what? No mom is going to want their son to be dating someone that has a kid already. Like, um, no guy is interested in being a kid's dad at that time, right? It so it it was rough. And um, my mom and dad, though, they were. I lived at home with them, and they took over the majority of all of it. Um, I I kind of freaked out a little bit when I first had her, and just wanted I just wanted to hang out with my friends and just be like a normal teenager. So, I wasn't I was in and out of the house and my mom and my dad and my you know my siblings were helping me out all the time and stuff, but you know, I just wanted to do normal stuff and it was it was rough, but then eventually when I went to school, I started when I made the decision to go to school and then I started going to school when I was I was like 19 when I started college. I I started straightening my shit out and being like okay this I have a kid she's she's 4 years old I ha, or 5 years old whatever she was at the time and you know I just have to get my life straight for her
0: When I was talking to this guest before it was interesting because you know there's a lot of stigma about having a child at 16 for example however if you look at our more ancient cultures that's when you know, women were having children, you know, 15, 16, um, because that's, you know, obviously when we're most fertile, most reproductive or up until our twenties. But when you look back, it was an entire village that helped raise that child. And now you kind of look at our modern society in 2024, a, there's stigma around that, and then B, there's not that community. There's not that. It takes a village. And a lot of these young mothers are on their own when they have these children. So I think this is an interesting perspective is that, yes, you can have children if you're younger. Is it is it what you chose? Possibly not. But is it the end of the world? No. However, the missing piece is just like you illustrated. Who is your village? Who are those people around you that can help raise that child just as we would have a thousand years ago?
1: Yeah, I don't I just don't know how that even would have went down, but it would have been ugly. I'll tell you that if I didn't have any help because I, I think about that though, sometimes like what about single moms that then their teenager has a kid and the single mom is already like leaving the house all the time to try to work and support the family as it is. And I, I mean, think about this. Like I had my daughter when I was 15 years old, I didn't even get, have my driver's license until she was two or three years old. So what do you do? I live. I lived in the burbs. I didn't live in the city. There was no such thing as a bus. What do you do with your life? You know, you, you have to depend on people. And that's what I did.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's beautiful to hear that you had the people to depend on. Because again, I think there's a lot of, sh- James, the wrong word, a lot of judgment cast, you know, when people put their child into adoption. But again, if it's a 15-year-old person, uh, 15-year-old girl, excuse me, with no support structure, that might be their only chance for making sure that that child remains healthy you know so this this is the kind of bigger picture that a lot of people i think don't take into account when they are casting judgment in certain situations
1: yeah and it's it's for, since i've been in the situation it's a no win situation i'll tell you because I actually got pregnant in uh, in high when I was in ninth grade and I was in Catholic school, and they they told my mom like she can't get an abortion because of the Catholic church and she can't be at this school pregnant like that. These are the choices that you're given as, I mean, now this was, this was almost 30 years ago, but uh, now it's different. They probably have a daycare center in the high school. I don't know, but um, just, it's, it's always been like, and it's been shitty for me. This is with the, the woman always gets the shitty end of the stick because the guy's just kind of sitting by like, whatever, I'll just do whatever you decide. But you you get the brunt of it being the woman, you know?
0: Absolutely. Well, fast forward a few years, now you're pursuing nursing. Walk me through that journey and how you ended up finding cytotechnology instead.
1: So I start college and they say, you have to take these prerequisite classes in order to get into nursing school. So um, I had dropped out of high school when I was 16 so I barely even took classes and and like a year of the time I was in high school I was out because I was pregnant so I basically didn't go to high school and take all of the normal classes so they said you have to take this math class this the biology class this psychology class all this so the very first day I show up to biology and I don't even really know what it's going to be and We're in there and then we take a lab and the very first lab, we pull out microscopes and she has us like cut a piece of an onion up and take the skin off the onion and look at it under the microscope. And I was like, I don't even know what happened. It was like this, this moment, like something hit me over the head and was like, this is the coolest thing in the world. And um, within, I think the first week I went up to my teacher and said, is there a way I could get a job? like looking in the microscope. And she so happened to be a lab scientist at like a hospital lab scientist. She was a microbiologist and she was like, oh yeah. And introduced me to that whole world that I didn't even know existed. And of course this was in the late nineties or early two thousands. There was no, I mean, there might've been Google or the internet, but I, I didn't really know about it then the internet was kind of like a joke when I was a teenager. Like, um, We would, we would make fun of people that said they went on the internet because you would hear these stories on like Jerry Springer show or something about people meeting someone on the internet and something happening with them. So we didn't really take it seriously as like a tool that we could use to help our, our lives. So I didn't know anything about the lab until that moment. And then the next semester I was like, I'm, I'm out of nursing. I have no interest in being a nurse. Like I want to be a scientist. So then I moved forward from there.
0: So where did that take you? And then I heard you talking about this on Dr. Drew, what was the the moment that happened that turned you more towards the pathology side?
1: So I from there I went, um, I, I decided first they, they had a program at the school called Medical Lab Technologist or MLT or Technician, which is when you do the, you know, when you get your blood taken, that's the person that does your blood work at the lab. And I was first in that. And then once I started getting towards two and three years, I was at Camden County College. It was just a local community college. I, I thought like, I could do this more. I feel like I want more of this for some reason. Like I'm not, I'm almost done and I, I, I could do more. So then I looked into Jefferson, which is where I went for cytotech. And I I went over there, graduated there and got my bachelor's as a cytotech, which is there, it was looking at cells under the microscope. So we would look at pap smears and stuff. And it's a more specialized lab technician. So you got paid a little bit more, too, which was a bonus being a single mom and everything. And I got hired out of school at the hospital and worked there for a couple years. And I would go in every day wearing nice clothes and a white coat. And I would sit at a cubicle most of the day and just look at slides. And then once in a while, I would go up on the floor and do needle biopsies. So Sometimes if someone has a mass or something in their thyroid, they'd stick a needle in it and pull out some cells to look at it just because it's it's like a less invasive procedure than getting surgery and getting cut open. And I would assist with those procedures too. And one day I was working, sitting at my cubicle and I heard this this huge commotion out in the hallway and all these people. So, you know, we were all friends and I went on the hallway and was like, what's up? And everybody was freaking out because there was this horrible smell in the hallway. And I went out there and was kind of investigating to see what it was because it just was the nasty, like this funky smell that I never smelled before. Um, it didn't smell like poop. It didn't smell like pee. It just was really nasty. And I obviously I was like curious what it was. Went over around the block or around the wall to the pathology department and everyone said that the leg refrigerator was broken and it was leaking. (laughs) And I just, I just said, what do you mean a leg refrigerator? Like what's, what's a leg refrigerator? And I look and it's, it looks like a a refrigerator that you would see at a pizza shop that would have the sodas lined up in it and everything. But instead it had a bunch of amputated legs wrapped up in biohazard bags (laughs) And I was kind of mind blown by that because I was working at the hospital for a couple years already and had no idea that like on the other side of my cubicle behind the wall was a refrigerator that had amputated body parts in it. So that kind of was a little shocking to me. And then I thought like, well, what else is going on back here? And then I saw this whole world back there of just people sitting at stations with cutting boards that just had giant organs sitting on them and they were it looked like a kitchen, but not a kitchen. <laughs> um, and and I got so curious about that. And then all of a sudden I got kind of bored with the microscope stuff after going over there and seeing what was going on in that department. So that room that I walked into was called the gross room, which is where you look at gross pathology. It's it's really called that actually the gross room. And um yeah, that's where you any know, anytime you get anything removed from your body in the hospital, it goes to that lab to get examined. And I thought, okay, I need to come work over here now.
0: I laughed when I heard you telling that story. The reason being <laughs> I grew up on a farm, my dad was a veterinary surgeon, and uh, he would keep all kinds of things. You know, sometimes he'd bury it and just dig it up and get the bones for, you know, for skeletons to study, and other times, you know, it was pathology. But we had a fire in the horse hospital. So, you know, the firefighters have put it out and they had done um, what they call overhauls. they removed what they could salvage. Um, and my brother, it was in the summer, um, had two friends on the farm with him. And the fridge was still sitting out unplugged outside this building for quite a long time. And as he walked by, he pulled the fridge open and the two friends behind him threw up. (laughs) (laughs) So when you were telling that story, I can even I can envision, you know, everything, the smell and everything.
1: Yeah, it's 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 crazy because yesterday on my podcast, Mother Knows Death, we were talking about a nursing home that or not a nursing home, a funeral home that has recently been in the news because they were. They were promising these green burials with no chemicals or anything like that, no embalming fluids. And here they were taking money from people and taking the bodies and just stacking them up in this warehouse type thing. And one of the neighbors smelled the warehouse and called police and police showed up and found 200 dead bodies like stacked on top of each other, just decomposing. And I was thinking about how horrible the smell must have been. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't have to be living right next door to smell that. It would just it would just permeate the air for such a long distance. It's 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 a very distinctive smell once you smelled it.
0: Yeah, as you wrote a book about three years ago, one of the chapters was. The last day my last shift in orange county florida and this wasn't why i quit i think the gods just was like you know oh really you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna leave this department all right here's a day from hell and the middle I had multiple deaths but one of the ones was a homeless woman that had been missing for a few days again in the florida summer now and we got i forget now how close probably 200 meters towards where she was and i told the rest of the crew look you know i'll go i was the medic that day i'll go check it out and and yeah i mean that smell is like you said you'll never forget it but i got there and she was literally just you know flesh was hanging on bone by that point she was black and putrid and again you know no one needs to add that to their catalog but yeah it's it's something that sadly i'm sure a lot of people listening to this do know but few few will really understand but then to to discover that your loved one was stacked in a warehouse and the, the emotional damage that that must've done to a lot of people is horrendous.
1: Yeah. That, that was my first thought. Like I can't, especially cause I know what that looks like. I, I never, well, I was just going to say to you too, that was one of my first thoughts when I went to the medical examiner's office and saw a, a really bad decomposed person with maggots and stuff like Jesus, imagine ima- finding like one of your family members looking like this. I just, Cause it's so, it, they don't even look human anymore. You know, it's, it's just nuts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I was actually a, um, student paramedic. And it was funny, you talking about raising a child on your own. I went through a divorce. I was a single father, had no family in America whatsoever. Um, working, uh, full time on a very, very busy rescue in Florida, paramedic classroom, and then riding along with a completely different fire department up here, um, Not obviously not supported by my fire department in any way shape or form but when I was riding with them I was a full on black cloud all kinds of people died Um, and one of them was a guy that had been again not, not heard from for a couple of days and it was a Florida it was a trailer there was no AC and yeah, I mean, just so swollen and bloated that if you just got a pin, he would have probably exploded. And uh, oh yeah, it, it's so sad, but I'm glad that we found him. Just like you said, that we found him, not not someone who actually, you know, was was a family member. Because if that was their last memory of him, that would haunt them probably the rest of their life.
1: Oh yeah, I can imagine that.
0: So you find yourself going into the world of pathology as you start progressing through the years. Were there any? Um, kind of aha moments or realizations that you had um, as you were in that world now that you were kind of naive to before?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I I had a lot of them. I remember when, so after I decided I wanted to work over there, I went up to the the doctor who ran the entire pathology department and said, I want to leave this department and go to surgical pathology. And he tried to talk me out of it and said, you go to work every day and you wear a clean coat. And if you go work in surgical pathology, you're going to have to touch poop and blood and it's really messy and you have to wear scrubs. And I was like, yeah, I'm okay. Sign me up. So he let me just, I I did like a lateral transfer and was working over there before I went to PA school. I did it. Backwards than most people would do. So with the bachelor's degree, I was allowed to dissect certain organs with my level of education. And then while I was in PA school, I learned anatomy, just a whole other level of of anatomy and, and physiology and pathology. And I remember one day just sitting there, I was I was grossing an appendix, and then everything just clicked for me because there's a lot to be said about on the job trained experience. And this is something uh, Gabe and I always talk about that you have to work in order to have experience, but you also have to be educated in what all- to put it all together as a package, you know? And once I got that formal extra education with the, with anatomy and physiology, it just all, all of it like came together full circle and just clicked. And I thought like, this is why I've been doing this this whole time. Oh, okay. This makes sense. And then it it just was so silly, but it clicked for me. And then everything, I was like, I know everything now. I just know everything, (laughs) Um, which obviously I don't know everything, but I kind of got the full picture of, of why I was doing the job because prior to going to school, yeah, someone said, cut this up and put these certain sections through to show the pathologist, but I didn't really know why I was doing it. And once you know why you're doing it, you could know how to do anything because you know the right questions to ask what what the doctors are looking for when you're doing your dissections.
0: Something that I found As I progress on the EMS side and the fire service, you know, at first you're learning the building blocks, the facts, you know, this is, you know, A through Z of this disease or this injury. And then as you start getting more information, you know, taking extra classes and then just seeing more and more calls, you start to shift into the critical thinking phase where, yes, those are all in the back of your mind, but now you're actually being a lot more um, kind of more of a sleuth. And rather than just what they call a cookbook medic, where you're just, you know, following your protocol, you're actually able to critically think. Um, and I think that's the kind of next step in our path, our, our journeyman um, path of trying to become a great paramedic. And I never got there. I was uh, 14 years in the fire service and transitioned out. So I would not have the arrogance to say I ever reached any sort of pinnacle. But it was a, a real shift when, just like you said, all that knowledge kind of went into a mixing bowl. And your brain would just kind of spit out the right answers, even without you thinking about it, because now you'd had enough ingredients to make good decisions.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I saw that because I taught residents for, for years there afterwards. And you could see the difference between one, ones that got it and ones that didn't get it. it would, people just didn't understand how to put what they were learning in school to practical work. And that's the key. That's the key to life. With with anything, with with medicine, with firefighting, it's it's the key is to put it all together.
0: Well, I want to dive into the world of pathology, but before we do, when did you meet Gabe?
1: I met Gabe when I was in PA school, my second year of PA school, two thousand and eight.
0: Okay, so now you at, have the world at of patho-
1: Wawa.
0: <laughs> oh, well, okay, I. I jumped in then. So please tell me more. How, how was romance sparked in Wawa?
1: So, um, I was on my way to the medical examiner's act office actually in, in West Philly or one of my West Philly rotations that um, we, we did the medical examiner and children's hospital in Penn were all around there. So we, my, my classmates and I were over in West Philly for a while and I was on my way to pick up one of my classmates so we can go to West Philly. And I decided that I was going to stop in Wawa really quick and get a coffee on my way there. And I went in and I saw Gabe in there. um, And I didn't talk to, I would never talk to someone. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I just acted cool and was getting my coffee. And then he started talking to me and we ended up talking outside of the Wawa for like an hour and a half or something crazy. And the whole time my friend was like waiting for me to pick her up, to bring her to school. And I just totally blew her off and didn't (laughs) even, (laughs) and she was late that day too. So I didn't even tell her like, yo, I'm talking to this guy or whatever. And, um, I got in the car and picked her up and I just was so happy. Like I, I just knew I'm like the kind of person I just knew that I was going to be with him. And, um, from the fir- the very first day, and she was happy. She's like one of my best friends, and she was happy for me, so she wasn't she wasn't mad that that I totally blew her off that day.
0: That's so good to hear. I just did a post. Uh, my wife and I just hit uh, eleven years of being together um, about a month ago, and the the reason I put the post was just to kind of instill some hope. I was thirty eight when I met her, you know, and being, as I mentioned before, divorced, single dad, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. but. When I met her, it was the same thing. And ironically, it's a funny story. She, we did the whole match.com thing, and she said she was going to watch a band. So I brought a friend along with me, thinking she was already going out with some friends. She wasn't. So the three of us went on our first date. Oh, <laughs> my God, my that's so
1: funny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it was. But, you know, we, we we were talking, and then basically I never stopped seeing her after that. So I love hearing that kind of love at first sight, you know, story, because it does happen. You, I think you just got to meet the right person at the right time in your life
1: yeah i mean i don't know if he would (laughs) say the same thing um we it was rough it was rough with him for a couple years i think and that this is this would be something that you would have to talk with him about but i was always i would say that i was always on board with um with saying that and it took a while for us to get our groove but it's it's been just awesome our um 10th wedding anniversary is actually this weekend
0: Beautiful. Well, congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> so, you have this pathology route. Gabe has obviously, you know, my route, the first responder route. Um, different kinds of trauma, different kinds of exposure. What have been your comparisons? Not only just on the job, but also dealing with the things that you see for a living.
1: I think, I think that we're able to understand each other on that respect because he sees. A lot of work that would go to the medical examiner's office and especially working in um, the rescue company and the squad company. They're, they they go to all sorts of car accidents, people jumping off the bridge, b- decomposed bodies being found, people dying in fires. So he sees a lot of, of the similar stuff that I have seen. So we're able to talk about that. Um, all the time but it's just there's a there's just a lot to talk about because you're working you're you're all working at a place as a team to try to accomplish a task so there's a lot of similarities between between that and and really the task getting done has to do with the people being trained well and also there's all other factors too like having good work ethic and good uh, camaraderie between the people that work together and good morale at the institution that you're working at. So we we talk about that kind of stuff all the time and we have a lot in common when it comes to that.
0: And what about within your profession culturally? Is there is there a discussion of mental health, emotional health in the world of pathology?
1: No. I would say, I would say not, I mean, maybe there is now I haven't worked at the hospital full time in a couple of years, but no, it's not. And especially I had a hard time dealing with that a little bit. Cause when I was in PA school, I, I had to spend a summer at the medical examiner's office. And not only did the school not really prepare me for what I was about to go see, but just being there, it would, it I couldn't even imagine really working there the rest of my life because I thought it was so, it was so sad and depressing. Um, working in the hospital, I I do autopsies on people all the time, and some of them are young, some of them are babies, and some of them are are a fetus. Mom had a miscarriage. Horrible situations, but I feel like all the ones that you do in the hospital are medical and there's that's kind of like a god nothing you can do about it kind of thing whereas the medical examiner just you just see like the most horrible parts of society and what people do to each other and what people do to themselves and it i i could imagine that people that work in that particular field their whole life that that might be a lot to deal with. But even in the hospital, I saw horrible, horrible cases of just young people getting diagnosed with horrible cancer, like knowing that they're going to die from this cancer. And the autopsies, like I said, you would get a a father of three that was 40 years old that just died from some weird infection. And he comes downstairs and open up the body bag and he's like still wearing his Eagles t-shirt. And you think like, God, this guy could have been my husband or this guy could have been my brother or something, you know, that sort of thing. But we just kind of do it and block, block it all out. That's all we do.
0: Well, we even do that within our profession. And it's just sad because this last year, 2023, I saw a lot of people struggling. I think it's, you know, all the things, but also the ripple effects of the pandemic and all the shutdowns and isolation But I swear to God, the theme of 2024 is back into firefighter cancer again. And I had a, the wife of a firefighter and one of his brothers in his department, um, had been diagnosed with cancer and he was going to come on the show. And, uh, you know, he, he, we went back and forth and he's like, yeah, I'm not feeling so good today. And I just got a message the other day that, that he's in an induced coma and may or may not come out of it now. And this is probably someone younger than me, you know? And so, you know, when we talk about, oh, it's, it's. You know, it's it's the work of God. There's nothing we can do about it. There's some time in God, you know, these poor infants that die of, you know, leukemia and those kind of things. I think it's it's harder to find the origin, you know, the 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 cause. But when you look at my profession, it's glaring what is killing a lot of our men and women. We can't save them all, but the sleep deprivation and the carcinogens and all the other elements that contribute to our ill, Ill health does steal first responder lives way, way sooner than they should have gone
1: yeah that's I mean, that's a, a huge fear I have with Gabe, obviously, just because I know a lot about especially burning things and how the chemicals change when things are burned, and just them breathing it in all the time and hearing the horrible stories about the first responders from nine eleven and just i I hear stories all the time about now their uniforms could be a problem and um the extinguishing materials or can be a problem anything can be a problem like <laughs> um it's it's something that you guys not only risk your life just on an acute level i would say just going into a burning building but also long term health effects that you don't even know might pop up in 20 years from now
0: yeah and even the shift work i think the the world health organization and other groups are identifying it as a carcinogen You know, so this is the other side of the coin. You've got these exposures, but then we're breaking down their immune system. They're breaking down the ability to deal with these exposures as well. So it's like a double-edged sword.
1: Yeah, and I mean, my husband's department works on 24 hours on and then three days off, 24 hours on, but then they also have the opportunity for a 12 hour overtime shift in between that. And yeah, I mean, there's nights that he comes home it's always the night before we're supposed to go on, like, a giant road trip where he's supposed to drive <laughs> 10 hours or something. Um, and he just comes home and he's like, I, you know, he wears that the whoop thing. And um, he'll just be like, look, like it, it registered that he took a half hour nap in, in a 24 hour period. That's just it's not good.
0: no. No, it's not. And, it's, and he's working the better schedule. 2472 is the what Northeast works. The rest of the country, a lot of them work 2448. That's one less day between each of their shifts, which is insane. Absolutely insane.
1: Yeah, it is. And we have a funny thing in our house because we say, you know, he has three days off in between his shifts. So we're like day one we don't bother daddy. He's recovering from trying to catch up with sleep. And then day two, we say like, that's that's the best daddy day. That's the best day to like, that's days I'll schedule us to do family events, dates, because I know that he's had the best sleep and that's a great day. And then day three is like, uh, all right, daddy's got to go back to work tomorrow, kind of, you know? <laughs> so even though he's off those three days, he's really on the, the middle day, just on a normal sleep schedule and everything like that.
0: Absolutely, well, as I've pointed out a lot recently, you know each of each shift is three days crushed together, three eight hour days crammed together, so that day after the shift we 've actually worked from midnight through till whenever he gets off seven eight in the morning, so it's not even a day off, really, so that middle day, like you said that's the that's the golden day where they have woken up in their own bed and they don't have to get up early the next morning, so I think that's why. That shift should be, in my opinion, the industry standard at least. If not, give them even more time off.
1: Yeah, and it's weird because people say like, oh, he only has to work two days a week. And and it's just like, yeah, but, and it's not, I wouldn't even say it's a 24 hour shift because he goes in almost an hour early every day and then he stays late too. He always has to stay late for waiting for uh, relief or whatever, so it's it it sometimes ends up being even more than more than a 48 hour work week, you know?
0: Absolutely. Well, it's an interesting perspective. And thank you for that. When we talk about cancers, one of the things I wanted to, to kind of ask you about now we're. You know, exploring the inside of the body more often than not after someone has passed. But it's such a unique perspective and something that I tried to glean as much knowledge when I was a medic. You know, did they make it? You know, what else did you find? What did the blood work show? You know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We never obviously got the pathology um, post mortem results, but at least you know the the nurses and doctors after. But now we get to go one more step. One of the things that I really struggle to understand is the reliance or the only options for cancer to be radiation and chemotherapy. It seems to me that kind of agent orange, you know, just destroy everything and then fingers crossed the body restarts again. Claims a lot of lives. Some people may have passed anyway. Some people may have even, you know, changed the way they ate and did some other lifestyle changes and maybe reverse some of their diseases what is your perspective seeing inside these bodies? You see, you know, you see cancers and tumors themselves. I'm sure you've, you've done some of people that have had chemo. Has it given you any kind of unique perspective on the treatments that we traditionally use for cancer?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, there's certain if, so for example, my grandma got diagnosed with gallbladder cancer and When she went in to get her surgery and everything like that, they determined that she had stage three gallbladder cancer and possibly even stage four, like it was, it it was bad. And from my perspective, it was, she was going to die from that. And I was shocked when I went with her, she wanted me to go to the oncology appointments and I went with her and they were like, oh, we're going to try you on chemo and you're going to get, you're going to get really sick, but it's, it's going to do this and it's going to do that. And I remember going out to the car to my mom and saying, I don't think that she should do that. I think she should just be comfortable until she dies. Because I look at it like I know how these biliary cancers work. They're very aggressive. You're not getting rid of this. And why do you want to feel like shit the last couple months of your life? And so but I said, and I kind of explained this to my grandmom and said, you could, it's your life. You could do what you want to do. So she goes, well, how about I try it? And then if I don't like it, I won't do it. And she tried it and she was like deathly ill and was like, I will never put that into my body again. Like, let me just, let me just die in peace kind of. Right. And so from my perspective, I, there's certain cancers that I would say like, hell no, let me just, Let me just, if you could surgically remove this or make me comfortable, give me a stent or whatever so I'm not in acute pain, but let me just finish my life and go on with it. But then I've seen other positive effects of it. Like one of our, uh, one of the coworkers at the hospital, her dad got diagnosed with stage three colon cancer. He had the tumor resected and then he got chemo and whatever chemo they gave him wasn't that bad. Um, So he he was able to go to work. He was a little tired, but he never like lost his hair and wasn't nauseous all the time and stuff. And I mean, he's still alive. And this has been almost 20 years later and got to live a a great life and see his grandkids grow and everything like that. So um, I definitely think like chemo is just in that big lump of like the pharmaceutical company. Let's just throw drugs on the problem instead of trying to just figure it out like with my grandma, I just was mind blown that they were even trying to give her hope I, I guess at the same time though if you're a person that has cancer you don't want to be told like hey this is it for you you're dead you know um but I thought that they were kind of giving her false hope and my mom too because my mom has two other sisters so we all went out to the car and I was like mom she's going to die from this. Like you need to start being prepared for this. Whereas my aunts were like, no, the oncology doctor said she has a chance. And, and I'm like, she, no, she, I've never seen that, you know, what, what we see all the time. Um, So it's just, for me, it's on like a case by case basis, according to what cancer you have, you know?
0: Well, I believe, you know, again, like we were talking about children with diabetes, I think, you know, a lot of these adult cancers are accelerated, initiated by environmental elements. I mean, I think if you look back um, at more ancient humans, you know, I doubt a lot of people 300 years ago were dropping dead of breast cancer, you know, women in their 30s and 40s. So, Identifying whatever is is increasing the likelihood of getting cancer is also an important part of this conversation. Yet it seems to be you know 5Ks, purple beads, and you know chemo. So trying to unpack what is it that's creating so much disease the same as we do in the fire service, the carcinogens, the sleep, etc., needs to be said as well. With all of these you know um, postmortems and, and and insights that you have now, have you noticed a correlation with a lot of the people that have cancer with other diseases within their body or obesity or or any element like that
1: i will say that every single every single time we would get an autopsy in the hospital the resident would come up to me and say like hey we have an autopsy today and my first question is are they obese because it just when you hear of a 56 year old person dying it's usually that's one of the that's one of the things that we would see all the time is obesity related stuff. Not to say that we didn't get the the 96 pound 80 year old lady that that I could pick up with my hands like th- that happens too. But the majority of people that I would see younger deaths, um, especially are are due to obesity. Now, believe it or not, we don't, do a ton of autopsies on people that have cancer. Um, Not that I haven't done a lot of them, but it's not as common as you would think because in most cases, if a person has stage four cancer and they're dying from that cancer, they'll ask the family like, hey, do you want to get an autopsy? And the family says no because they know why their family member's dying. So, luckily i got to work in a in an edu- an academic institution where we would be able to sometimes ask the family if we could do the autopsy because the person had like a weird cancer or they wanted to look at how the treatment worked but um you just you don't see a, a whole lot of it all the time because family members are the ones that drive the autopsies in the hospital and they usually know why their family members is dead
0: what about during the the time where covid was at its height were you exposed to a lot of autopsies then
1: no i only did a few cuz i only do week like a per diem thing now with autopsies i did a few when it was in that weird time period of um i would say after christmas 2019 to to st patrick's day 2020 when it was like something weird's going on in China, all these people, like the buzz happening. And, um, one of my friends actually, who's also a PA is from China. And she just said, like, I've been talking to my mom and my brother, like something's weird over there, you know, just heads up. And I did do an autopsy on someone right towards the, when the lockdowns were happening and stuff that had like crazy looking lungs and everything. And I was like, that's weird. Um, and just, you know, no extra precautions or anything. And then they shut down doing any autopsies like that for a, for a while afterwards, unless it was absolutely necessary. But they weren't doing them for, for months afterwards.
0: Because that's another situation where even though it was kind of lauded as heresy, like how dare you suggest that, the reality was through a medical profession's eyes that it was an opportunistic disease that was killing people with pre existing medical conditions. So again, when you bring back in obesity, diabetes, hypertension, that was a massive precursor and arguably preventable element of human health, then when you add in this virus was causing death rather than survival.
1: Oh, yeah, I I 100% believe that. I mean, I personally didn't see that doing autopsies just because like I said, they weren't they weren't being performed during that time. But I, I know that that is, that was one of the things that you would say, okay, what are the comorbidities associated with this? And not to say that there's not the the one-off person here or there that seemed, was seemingly like completely healthy, normal weight, g- prior awesome blood work, all that kind of stuff that died from that infection. But for the most part, yeah, I mean, and also, One of my things, too, is that it's not even obesity. Well, obesity is definitely a comorbidity factor for covid, but also cigarette smoking is, too. And they don't even I I don't even hear them ever talk about that on the news that that increases the risk of you having serious side effects of covid so much. And so if you took away the obesity and you took away the, the cigarette smoking, it would be a nothing, really. But nobody wants to address the real problems, you know?
0: No. Well, I think what's so maddening, and I've, and when, when COVID hit, I ended up putting an extra episode a week and bringing on all these great minds, everyone from doctors and nurses to strength and conditioning coaches and nutritionists people that could give actionable information where people were told to stay at home and uh you know get fast food delivered to their house and alcohol and watch tiger king
1: and not um, and not go to the gym either don't, exactly because it was close that, yeah. and the beach is yeah.
0: close um and so now as we emerge my thing has been all right you know it was clearly never about health and, and the reason i say that is not political because health of the nation is not politics it's it's You know, compassion and community. We had a captive audience for two years where we could have put money back into PE programs, got good food, you know, real food being served in schools just like they used to, removing the soda machines, um, you know, pedestrianizing downtowns, giving incentives to local farmers to grow clean food and all the things. And none of that happened. And now here we are in 2024. And the obesity epidemic is growing. The, as you said, the uh, the, di- the childhood diabetes is increasing. The mental health crisis, the opioid epidemic, and so one single disease gave us an opportunity to really address the health of the nation and what happened is is it was you know politicized and the actual health of the nation you know was was secondary and nothing changed and here we are even worse off now than two years or excuse me three years ago which i think is disgusting because we had the most amazing opportunity to really move the needle on the nation's health
1: yeah and when you sit there and you think about okay when why are these things increasing? Diabetes, cancers in younger people, it, obesity. I mean, just think about when you went to school when you were a little kid. How many, how many kids did you hear had diabetes? How many kids did were obese? Just no, think it's a about long that. time
0: ago. So, <laughs> so yeah, <no. laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. But I sit there and think, like, well, what was what happened in my childhood that's different than than my kids' childhood or what's their their time period? And it's like, my mom cook dinner every single night and then once maybe twice a month on a Friday night, we would get either Chinese food or pizza, like one pizza for our entire family. You know, Um, we drank water out of a faucet. There was no such thing as bottled water, which that needs to be addressed because the, the plastics with the food and with the drinks are an issue. No matter what anybody says, I think that that's a big contributing factor. And, um, the, just the choices. And now it's like, I could go on DoorDash and order from 150 different restaurants just from my house. It's so insane. And I try to cook for, I cook for my family almost every single night of the week because I'm trying to like bring it back and and not using even prepackaged stuff, like cooking from scratch and stuff for us. But, and I pack my kids lunch. So I like, fortunately I could do that every day but it's, it's just the over-processed foods and, and the way that it's, it's kind of being pushed on you like that. It's, it's nuts.
0: Yeah. Well, and this is what I think we struggle with. I mean, you see the end stage, you know, your husband sees the end stage. I saw the end stage and I I always remember comparing coaching in the gym, you know, where, where I teach and being a paramedic, you know, when I coach, I try and stop people from getting in the back of an ambulance, you know, prolonging it at least when I'm, you know, in uniform, then you call me when you're having your worst day when it's almost too late or mostly too late for people. So, you know, there are certain professions that we see behind the curtain, we see the reality, you know, you can tell me that big is beautiful. And, you know, any conversation about weight loss is fat shaming. Well, there's nothing beautiful about me sticking a ch- tube down your throat when you're 42 years old. And trying to defibrillate you and then, you know, leaving you there for the coroner. It's it's horrendous. And you should have lived twice as long as you did. So I think it's it's a powerful voice from from your world, from my world to advocate like, you know, we are literally killing our people. You know, there's I think 70 percent of Americans are either obese or overweight. And, you know, yeah, it's disgusting. I was going to
1: bring that up to the whole big is beautiful thing that pisses, it pisses me off so bad. And there, I'll never forget there was like this cover uh, on the Cosmopolitan magazine, and it was like health at any size with with a, a severely obese woman on the cover. And I, listen, I think there needs to be a different kind of view of just because a person is obese, that doesn't mean that we should like say that their their body shape is not attractive. We're not talking about that. We're talking about healthy, like visceral fat, the, the fat that covers your organs. That's what I'm talking about is not healthy. When you're, when you gain weight, the more and more weight you gain, you not only get fat on your belly, but when you cut someone open inside, if you, I could look at a person right away, just the inside of their body and tell you if they're obese or not because their organs look more yellow because there's a lot more fat and think about your heart trying to beat and then you putting a giant fat sweater around it like it just doesn't move as much as it should and it doesn't work as well as it should and in on top of that you can get your your heart enlarges and there's just so many different things that could go wrong as a result of obesity and I I think it's completely irresponsible. I just saw some TikTok video the other day of some doctor saying that it was completely okay to be obese and people shouldn't say anything about it. And I'm like, you you're you're sick for saying that shit. You want to get these TikTok views and stuff and I'm like it's it's so messed up. And any person that works in e- EMS or in the hospital pathology whatever, you know that that that's not true. It's and It's and it's crazy because so most of the morgues that I've either interned at or worked at have especially the one that I worked at for so many years was like an old school morgue made in the 1950s or whatever that had a a gurney on it. The autopsy table was for an average sized person. Now, every single new morgue that I've seen that's getting made has bariatric morgue tables because people are getting bigger. If you go into waiting rooms at doctors' offices, do you notice that they have these like extra large, weird, wide chairs? Now they're not like normal chairs.
0: Well, the wheelchairs too. I mean, I always remember that, you know, when I first came to America. But certainly, as I progressed through my career, you put a yeah, you know, normal person. I say normal. I mean the 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 size that they would be if they ate well and they were active on the average hospital wheelchair. It almost looks like a comedy. It looks like you know when people go on a on a road trip and they take a picture in front of those those massive yeah. chairs. That's what mm-hmm. it looks like. And that's what's so sad is that's almost a standard wheelchair now. And, you know, I've had, literally I've had patients that were basically a thousand pounds that were the pancake on the bed that people revel at in some of these ooh, ah, documentaries. Now, we, a lot of us have had those over and over and over again. And, and that was my biggest one. But I've had, you know, multiple people that were five, six hundred pounds. And when you come from a place of kindness and compassion, you're never going to shame that person. But your heart breaks, especially if it's a child, because you know that their lifespan is being woefully shortened. And that's why we're advocating for nutrition, for exercise. You don't need to have a six pack. You don't need to look like some 1980s you know, muscle and fitness cover model. You just simply need to be a healthy weight so that as you touched on your heart, your lungs, your kidneys, they can all function properly. And you can have whatever number of decades you were destined to have when you were first born.
1: Yeah, we, I mean, I've had situations that the person was so big that I couldn't even bring them into the autopsy room because the bed they were on wouldn't turn the corner. And I had to cut someone in the refrigerator once because I couldn't bring them into the autopsy room. It was, and, and I'm sitting there like, it, I do feel bad for the patients, but I'm like, why are they telling the patients it's okay that that they're living like this? It's just, it's, it's terrible. I don't, I mean you could say this about a million other different things that's going on in the world right now like why is everything so goddamn backwards but i i don't really know i don't really know what to what to say i just could say what i say from my perspective i mean i get hate mail and nasty gram all the time saying that i don't i i am idolizing thinness and all this th- these buzzwords these people use and uh, whatever like I could just sit there and say, at least I know that that that's what I see. And that's, that's really what I believe.
0: Yeah. Well, we've been so programmed, um, all of us, I mean, modern society, we have screens, you know, there are companies and I've talked about this recently. There are companies that I would argue are headed by sociopaths. And the reason I say that is the only way that you can sleep at night, knowing that your cigarettes or your fast food or your soda or your pharmaceuticals um which are killing literally millions of people around the world. The only way you can sleep is you've got to be mentally unwell. That's it. You a normal person would not be able to see. They'd be like, we can't sell these anymore. They're they're killing people, well, you know, our opioids, our cigarettes, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But people are being bombarded just simply so that some people can become millionaires. That's it. And so we are swimming upstream. So it's not anything other than trying to go back to how we lived 100 years ago before all this. There was no chemicals on our foods. There were no hormones, antibiotics in our animals. You know, the 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 the, the medicine that had lasted literally millennia was somewhat holistic. I and mean, that's why acupuncture works, why chiropractic works. That's why herbal medicine works. And Now we're seeing, you know, plant medicine fixing a lot of the, the mental health problems in military and first responders. So we have to really push back and go back to, pretty much just 100 years ago, how our grandparents you know, were raised. And there's so much wellness in that. But if we you know, turn our backs because we haven't even questioned the way that we have been programmed through our screens, that you need this stuff and you need you know, this fast food and you're going to be a dancing model if you drink this can of Coke, then you know, understand that you're part of the problem. You know, if you're pushing against something that simply is gonna improve the health of the nation, you are part of the problem.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's it it's really disturbing to me, like that where things are going and it that they're that we're just not admitting like clearly this is the problem. And it's you could say the same things about deaths. It was like everyone seemed to care so much about all the people dying from covid but what about all the people that have been dying from cigarettes for years and years and years and it's not just like lung cancer it's all of the comorbidities associated with it cardiovascular disease and i i mean just that alone we've lost way way more people from tobacco alone than than covid ever same with the opioids and everything like that and it's just like funny how they just want to address certain issues and not other issues
0: yeah well just to underline it how many news stations had that death ticker in the bottom corner that was just turning over turning over with the COVID deaths where's that now where's that with the deaths on the road
1: exactly and it that always annoyed the shit out of me too because i think like you you work as in the ems field so you see dead people every single day of your life probably right and working in in the hospital and pathology in the morgue you people die every single day at the hospital and it just it but nobody really knows about that like if i came home every day and was like mom i saw six dead people today th- then she'd be like oh wow six people died at the hospital today i didn't i wouldn't have thought that much and you know people it's not on normal people's minds so when they see all these deaths coming in it freaks them out and you're like you are aware that people die every day right like millions of people every single day all over the place like it's happening
0: yeah well one of the funniest things and again not funny haha but just just complete um scaremongering really was all the footage of oh there are patients in the hallways waiting for beds and i'm like that's every fucking day. Any, <laughs> <laughs> like this is not, now you're paying attention. You never seem to give a shit before. And now yeah. if you go back to all the urban cities, there will still be paramedics and EMTs holding the wall with stretchers trying to get their patient a bed. So it fitted that narrative for a moment. And then the moment they changed to something else, they were like, oh, ah, yeah, know, we're good now. Doctors and nurses, yeah. we don't care about them anymore. You know, they, you know, yeah. they're not heroes anymore in this building. Fuck them.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. So fickle. But- and we officially scared the shit out of everyone, and like <laughs> all of the, the the negative health effects that just will happen from that with people just not going to the doctor anymore, and and everything. It's just, it's just terrible.
0: Absolutely. Well, you became part of the solution, obviously, even your work in itself, but also you you just decided to actually start putting some things out online, which I think is amazing because again, you're educating people on you know, all the things from from the mental health and suicides through to, you know, the diseases that we've discussed. So what made you start, you know, your Instagram platform and then kind of lead me through the creation of your um the the gross room as well.
1: So I started um I I just was seeing these autopsies and they were they were just so cool. I wanted to share like my findings with with other people that might be equally as interested. And I started a website that was like iHeartAutopsy.com. It was a blog. And um, I was doing that for a little while. And a couple people, like I would tell the doctors at the hospital to look at it and stuff. But how was I going to get anybody to look at my blog, right? (laughs) Um, So then my husband, he suggested that I start making the posts a little bit smaller and putting them on Instagram. And I didn't even know what Instagram was because I I'm just kind of like anti social media kind of person, believe it or not. And my but at the time my daughter was 18, so she was all about Instagram, and she set up the account for me and showed me how to do it. and And then it just kind of started from there. I I got it was when Instagram was good and you could organically gain people based on their interest and. And they weren't showing you stuff you didn't wanna see. And um, so I, it just blew up from there because I was putting like hashtags and people would just search things they were interested in. And also it would, there was like the Explorer page was for accounts that it wasn't for any account, it was for like ones that they would showcase kind of. And people would find me through there and it just kind of blew up from there.
0: As you start presenting all these cases to people, when you look back now, what was some of the most interesting cases that you worked on?
1: I think some of the most interesting cases that I post, um, were definitely that got a lot of attention were like the miscarriages and stuff. I think that people, cause that's a big thing with women, especially cause a lot of, a lot more women than you think have them, but nobody really talks about it a lot. It's kind of embarrassing and well, it shouldn't be embarrassing, but they feel embarrassed and, um, I think a lot of people were shocked by the volume of stuff I was saying that I was getting in the lab all the time, multiple miscarriages a day, it's happening to people all the time. Um, I specifically have like more of an interest in in natural pathology, because that's just natural disease and death. Um, So I was showing a lot of that stuff. And just and also forensic stuff too i have an interest in the the gross findings with certain kinds of forensic cases so i just showed a bunch of those different kinds of cases and people like how i i think a lot of times in the news you'll you'll read for example um like i just did a really good article on this a former NFL player named Mike Williams. He died from a tooth abscess that eventually caused him to have a brain abscess. And he died and he was like 36 years old. And people read it and they say, oh my God, how like how did that happen? And I like to write an article like not only how did that happen and how that could happen to you, but like what that looks like when we do an autopsy of someone that has a brain abscess. I like to do like this because i think a lot of times people have these questions about visuals and they they wouldn't really know what we would be looking for so this is what we look for and this is how we give this diagnosis and say this person died so someone else um just died oh it was some some um weight loss influencer just died at 35 years old and it said, "Oh, her cause of death is cardiac arrest." And I just get so annoyed by that because it's like, "Oh, really? Her heart stopped?" Like, yeah, everybody's cause of death is cardiac arrest, right? Exactly. So, um, I like to just discuss those kinds of things about, like, because when a person that's not that's not educated in this particular area is writing an article, they don't really understand. They don't understand how a person dies and and why cardiac arrest isn't a cause of death and, um so so anyway getting back to your question i i was doing that on instagram for a while it was awesome but my account got deleted a lot it was getting reported as like um gr- graphic material and i was able to plea my case to instagram all the time to restore my account but it recent like during covid just things changed a lot because of the censorship stuff and i i always kind of like pretty much stay away from COVID because I don't think it's like the only thing happening in the world and the only thing happening in medicine because it's not. So I, I just am like, eh, I'll leave that up to other people. I don't care. There's like a million other things going on with people's health besides COVID. Um, so, but it just, things just got censored during that time period. And I decided that I was going to start my own website called The Gross Room. Um, so I didn't have to worry about because. On Instagram, I couldn't show nipples, so I couldn't even show like what breast cancer looks like on a person. It's ridiculous. Can't show penis, anus, vulva, like just huge things that pathology occurs in these organs. And just, I was limited by how many, how much text I could put in a post. Now I could write an article as long as I want with as many pictures as I want, as graphic pictures as I want. And I don't have somebody threatening me that that, that they're going to take down my account. And now Instagram's got to the point where I can't post anything that has to do with hurting anyone or homicide. I can't post anything that has to do with self-harm or suicide. And it's like, why can't we talk about this stuff? This stuff is happening. I'm not showing people glamorized getting murdered, but I'm showing what happens when someone does get murdered and how maybe you could avoid that happening to you or just, it's education. It's it's not it's not a sensationalism of, of murder.
0: Well, especially with the self-harm. Like you said, murder, you know, that's someone else coming into your world, and you may or may not be able to prevent that. But when it comes to the conversations on, like you said, self-harm, cutting, you know, addiction, suicide, I've noticed that. You have to do, like, stupid little, you know, asterisks and exclamation marks to, to in the word suicide you know, and it's like, this is the very thing that we're trying to get people to talk about. And you've literally created an environment where you've canceled any conversation on mental health. So I, I hope that Instagram eventually will, will start to loosen that back up again. Because, you know, yeah, if I mean, we now know, you know, AI can create transcripts of someone saying, Oh, why don't you just kill yourself? Of Clearly, that's hate speech. But if you're talking about suicide in in a, open, compassionate, community-based way and trying to educate people and open doors, that's a completely different thing, but they just kind of tar with the same brush, which has created the complete opposite environment of what we actually need, especially for our young people.
1: Yeah, and in the gross room, when I write posts about suicide now, especially, there'll be members of my group that will write, like, I tried to kill myself a couple years ago, and this is how I got help. And then someone will say like, thank you for telling me that because I'm going through that right now. It's like an open forum of discussion, whereas social media right now is just complete, just trolls. It's just constant comments of people that would never say anything to you in real life, never confront you, and just being like aggressive behind their screen or something. And they, they don't even necessarily mean to put it towards you, but that's the environment that's created on there now.
0: Absolutely. Well, I want to be mindful of your time. I know we've got 15 minutes left. Before we go to where everyone can find all of the things that you have out there, there's a couple of things I want to pull out from what you said before, again, through a pathology lens. The first thing you talked about miscarriages. Now, I don't have data, but it seems like a lot of my men and women, you know, my brothers and sisters in uniform struggle with fertility and seem to struggle even with, with miscarriages too. So, Firstly, is, is, are we seeing nationally an increase in that? And have you even been kind of exposed to any statistics when it comes to that?
1: I don't know statistic wise, and I can't say, I think a lot of it is, again, you have all of these environmental factors that are different now. Um, But just talking to like real life, talking to someone like my mom, like my mom went through a couple of miscarriages before she had us. And she seems to think that like this has been going on a long time, but like you just didn't talk about it back then. It was it was like a hush hush thing. But, like she would have killed my father if he told one of his friends that she had a miscarriage, kind of thing, you know. Yeah. So now, where whereas now you're saying like one of your friends is saying his wife had a miscarriage. It's like so a lot of it is just like culturally, there's more awareness to it and try, more normalization of it. I don't know if there's anything else to it. I do think I've I've known a couple uh women that I've worked with over the years that have gone for fertility treatment and some of them I feel it was really valid. They were really having a hard time for years getting pregnant and but some of them I I was like, "Yo, you've been trying for like 6 months. Like relax." Cuz again my my mom is an example of someone that couldn't get pregnant for a couple years but she ended up naturally having three children and she had two miscarriages or something but which she's okay with talking about now by the way <laughs> um but but yeah so it could be a combination of like environmental factors and stuff and just also just awareness of it
0: now the other side of that you know the kind of almost shame that comes with a loss what did i do wrong um I think one of the conversations that seems to be lost is the body's incredible innate ability to heal itself, innate ability to know when something is right and something is wrong. With some of these ma- miscarried fetuses, did they more often than not seem healthy, or was did you were you ever able to find a reason why possibly they were aborted by the body?
1: Yeah, so I, I mean, that's what I always try to tell a mom that that had a miscarriage is just. This is this is like a good thing that this happened cuz your body your body most of the time does not reject something that that is good like that. <laughs> so, it's rejecting this fetus because there's something wrong with this fetus and you don't want to deal with having this fetus born into a baby that's going to have problems for the rest of their life. So, it's it's like nature's way of of getting rid of something that that didn't go right. And Yes, most of the time they would say that the that a, a miscarried fetus is because of a genetic anomaly. We do send, in some cases, send the tissue to for genetics to see if if they could find something. And again, that only tests for x amount of genetic diseases, not every single genetic disease that exists. So just because it's negative doesn't mean that the fetus didn't have a genetic disease. There are these like rare times too, where there's something, the fetus is completely healthy, but there's something wrong with the placenta. It didn't form right. A blood clot got b- behind the placenta. But unfortunately, there's there's nothing that you can do to, to stop that, especially early on in a pregnancy. If someone starts having a, a clot behind their placenta when they're 10 weeks pregnant, I mean, I I don't even know how you would go in and, and fix that. And it sucks because the baby's fine but the but the that the or the fetus is fine but the placenta's not um but yeah we, we you see a whole bunch of different things like we would get mi- late term miscarriages 35 weeks and stuff it it just it it could have so many different factors to do with it
0: yeah well thank you i think that's an important you know perspective because you know for most people it's just quote unquote you know a, a natural abortion uh miscarriage um but again, if we're not painting the picture that the body knows what it's, you know, knows what it's doing, these, these parents are left with, with, like I said, with guilt and shame, like, what did we do wrong? You know, it must have been you know, the, the round of golf I played or whatever the hell it was, you know, instead of trusting the fact that, as you said, you know, the body will will let you know. And when, when the baby's healthy, the body will will go full term. So, you know, give yourself some grace. Um, one other area, I don't know if you've been exposed to this, but when it comes to, you um, you know, the postmortem side, sadly, when it comes to TBI, and this is more so, you know, for combat athletes and also our our military and some of the law enforcement, the CTE seems to be behind some of the, you know, the acute mental health struggles. Um, Have you come across uh, any kind of uh, autopsy where you found that the brain had been damaged from some sort of trauma, if you'd known the background of the individual?
1: Yeah, we used to do a lot. Um, we were associated with a, a neuro hospital, so we would do a lot of just brain only autopsies for research and, and things like that. And um not I didn't specifically work on any cases of CTE. And especially I feel like in the past ten years it's been getting more and more recognition where it wasn't even a thing. Like when I was in PA school. <laughs> I I didn't even learn about well, I won't say that. We we learned about like boxing trauma that you know that we would see in boxers and dementia that you would see in boxers which is probably now what would be considered to be cte but that was only like 15 years ago i went to pa school or whatever so um it's it's a new and upcoming topic and i think it's really really important i actually vent with my husband about this all the time with these football players that they're like getting these young uh, in my opinion young kids that they're taking advantage of and just throwing a lot of money at them and like not caring what their life is going to be like when they're in their 30s and retire from football and they have severe brain damage and cte can cause you to go completely nuts at the end of your life and just psychosis and not being a nice person to your family dementia it's a lot to consider when you want to put yourself in a career where you know you're getting repeated head trauma.
0: Absolutely. Well it's an important conversation. I think if you watch the Aaron Hernandez documentary, you know, I think they found that at the end of his and that was obviously a, a homicide. And then Junior Sayers, I think, was another one. It was a suicide, but he shot himself in the chest, knowing that it was something in his in his mind that was was creating that. So we have a responsibility as parents, as coaches, as, you know, members of schools to minimize the impact. You can have, you know, so many elements of a football game without constant head trauma and the same with our young martial artists too like you know if you're going to become a fighter or certainly some point you're going to have to get hit in the head but what can we do to minimize that in the gym as well so these are and then again our military you know the practicing the breaching again how can we look at that and, and minimize the amount of exposure the concussive force are you going to get in uniform so these are really really important conversations
1: yeah there was also a wrestler i think his name was Chris ben- Benet or
0: yeah, Benoit. Um, that sound yeah, right? Benoit. Yeah, Benoit. Yeah, he
1: um he killed his, I believe, his wife and his child. Um, and same thing, they they found that that he potentially had CTE. We actually just went to um over Christmas time. We went to Key West and we visited the Ernest Hemingway House. And on the way home, we were watching a documentary about his life and everything. And I'm like, I think that he had it too, honestly, because he had multiple situations where he had had trauma from being first in the military, but then he was in a plane accident. He had like all of these different times that he had a a traumatic brain injury. And then towards the end of his life, I mean, he was also an alcoholic, but aside from that, he was having psychosis at the end of his life and hearing voices and, and things like that. And, um, th- I totally, that was my first thought was that he had CTE.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, you combine possibly a, a, a rough childhood. You know, so now you have the precursor to mental health struggles, and then you add in CTE. And if you look at it one dimensionally, Oh, he was an addict. He was an alcoholic, you know, he was violent, but what was causing that, you know, unaddressed trauma, you know, problems, uh, physiologically in the brain, all the things, but if it's just reported as he was a cold-blooded, you know, cold-blooded killer that murdered his family, you again, we're, we're, ne- we're disregarding the lessons if we don't reverse engineer what happens in all these situations. Agreed. So I know we're running out of time here. So where can people find uh, The Gross Room, find your Instagram profile and your podcast as well?
1: So The Gross Room is thegrossroom.com. That's pretty easy. And that, that that I, my website's like my, I'm so proud of it. I just, it's, it's like a cool place that I would have liked to go to when I was learning about all of this stuff. <laughs> um, and I post every single day, lots of cases, lots of articles, and just uh, it's a great group of people. And they, and we all can have discussions on their normal, not Instagram-like. Um, so that's my website. My podcast is called Mother Knows Death. And I do that with my Daughter, that's where the mother knows death comes from. Um, and that Instagram is at mother knows death. And um, what was the other thing? You
0: um, the so you actually oh, my Instagram in- my, uh, yeah. my
1: actual Instagram account is uh, is my name at Mrs. Underscore and Jemmy A N G E M I. I mean, it was I Heart Autopsy when I started, but my account got deleted so many times. I just had to keep coming up with different names. <laughs> for my account. So um, that's why it, that's what it is. But that's my main Instagram account. I still post on there every week, but the majority of my content goes into the gross room now.
0: Beautiful. Well, I want to say thank you so much. It's been such an interesting conversation. Um, we're like opposite ends of, of the the kind of chain of survival, as they call it. Obviously, people have passed by the time they, they end up on a table in front of you. But I think there's so much value, especially comparing the two professions. So I want to thank you so, so much for being so generous and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today.
1: Thanks for having me. It was awesome.